Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, hello, Christ Community Church. It is so good to be together. I hope you had a great week and a wonderful weekend. I'm really excited that we get to study God's Word today because God always has something good to say to us. There's going to be a bit of a challenging passage, I think. It's going to make us think, and it's also going to challenge how we live. And so because of that, we really need to ask God for His help today. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so thankful that you speak to us, that you tell us uh, what we need to know about you and about how we should live. And so we pray that today, as we open up your Word, that you would Move inside of us. We need your help to understand what we read and to let it change us. So we pray that your spirit would be moving, that you give us ears to hear, and we pray that we'd walk away from this having been changed by you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my kids have this plastic kid-sized basketball hoop that we keep out on the patio in the backyard. And the other day, they asked me if I wanted to play basketball with them, which is always pretty awesome because when you're playing against a nine and a six-year-old, every shot is like, ugh, not in my house. So good, so good. But they said, all right, Dad, we're going to play basketball, but there's one change. This time, you can use your feet. And I'm like, okay, um, I guess so, but how's that really going to help you? And they say, oh, oh, it's totally going to help because you're also not allowed to use your hands. And I say, oh, really? Um, So that's going to be kind of challenging. Like, how are we going to get the ball up into the hoop like that? That's going to be tough. And so as we're talking about it, the idea comes up that maybe instead of using the hoop, we should uh, put out a net out on the grass, and that's where we should play. And at that point, I I say, "Are, are we still talking about basketball here? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. It's basketball. It's just with your feet and a net. And I say, you know, I'm not like super into sports, but I'm pretty sure that's not what they call it. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we are going to be looking at a passage where the Apostle Paul does a sort of switcheroo like my kids did. He starts off talking about one thing, but by the time he's done, he's transformed it into something completely different. He starts off talking about the typical Roman household of his day, And by the time he's done, he's made so many changes and modifications and different expectations that you're going to be asking the question, are we playing basketball or is this just soccer? Let let me read and then I'll explain. Starts in verse 18. It says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, here's my question. Did you mean that? Like, are you actually thankful 
for this passage of scripture? Because let's face it, this one is a difficult one. This is one of those ones, if you are a follower of Christ, that perhaps you are a little bit embarrassed by. It's a little awkward. You kind of wish it wasn't in the Bible. Or if you're an explorer and you're trying to figure out, what do I actually think about Jesus? Maybe you're drawn to Jesus, but it's passages like this that make you a little hesitant to fully surrender. Or, or if you're a skeptic, maybe you read these sorts of things and you say, this is exactly why I reject Christianity. You think, I can't trust anybody who would tell wives to submit and slaves to obey. Like that's morally backward. That, that, that doesn't just tolerate injustice, it perpetuates injustice. And I'll tell you, as someone who has committed my life to the study of the Bible, uh, these passages, they challenge me. I know exactly what they sound like and I wrestle with them. So what are we supposed to do when we come across a passage like this? Well, before I answer that question, I want to ask a different question first. That question is this. Where did we get our modern ideals of equality from? Where do we get these ideas that men and women are equal? That people of all social statuses should be treated with dignity and respect? That there is value in people from every culture on the planet? Where do we get those ideas? Those are our ideals, and we don't always live up to them, but... We got them from somewhere, don't, didn't we? It turns out the place we learned equality from was actually the Bible. That Listen to this revolutionary statement. It says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You know where that's from? That's from seven verses before the passage we're talking about today. Same book. Paul was always saying stuff like this. Listen to this other one from Galatians. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was a major theme for Paul and the early Christians, that everybody is equal before Christ, regardless of your gender or ethnicity or social status. Now today, if you say something like that, people kind of just nod politely. They're like, yeah, of course, it's kind of old news. But in that day, people would have laughed at you if you said this. They, they just knew. It was obvious. They're like, of course, some people are superior to others. Men are superior to women. Masters are obviously above their slaves. And everybody knows that some cultures are better than others. So what changed? What changed was that Christianity spread around the known world. It, it, Christianity went from place to place. And everywhere it went, it taught that all people are made in the image of God. It taught that every person is equal before the cross of Christ. And as that happened, it transformed how we treated each other. Now, our culture has kind of kept the conclusions of that, but it's tossed out the premises. But even so, the first place we learned it was from the Bible. So knowing this should actually give us a little bit of pause. If we read passages like this one about wives and children and slaves, and we say, I need to reject Christianity because of this, Maybe, maybe we've misunderstood what this passage is about. Maybe it's actually doing the opposite of what we think it's doing. Maybe instead of reinforcing injustice, it's actually subverting it. To understand what I mean by this, the first thing we need to understand is households and power. Households and power. Uh, to get this, you need to know what the Roman family was like. I'll tell you what the Roman family was not like. It was not like this. A mom and a dad and 2.5 kids. Today we call that the nuclear family, or you might call it the sitcom family. And even though most of our families don't look exactly like that, still, for most people, that's kind of the, the typical regular family that comes to their mind when they think of that. 
Well, that was not the typical family in the Roman world. In the first century Roman Empire, in Paul's day, the typical family looked like this. There was a man and his wife and all of his unmarried children, even if they were adults, all of his slaves and any freed slaves who had been adopted into the family. So that was the entire household. And above the entire household was one man called the paterfamilias. The paterfamilias. Now, the paterfamilias had complete authority over his household. He could do whatever he wanted. He had legal authority over his wife and her, her property. He had the right to sell his children into slavery, even to execute them. And he could do whatever he liked with his slaves. Beat them, buy them, sell them, rape them, kill them. They were his property. Now, of course, most heads of household in that day didn't do all of these things, but that wasn't the point. The point was they could. They were allowed to. Roman society gave incredible power to the paterfamilias over his family, over his home. So what that means is when ancient authors were writing about the family, typically what they would do is they would address these different groups under the paterfamilias. They would talk to wives, they would talk to children, and they would talk to slaves, and they would instruct them, here's how you're supposed to relate to your paterfamilias, to your head of household. And so when Paul is talking about the family, he does the exact same thing. He follows the same structure. People would have been familiar with it. He goes through those different groups, but as he does, he kind of makes a twist on things. And that's where it gets interesting. Let's play a game together, okay? I'm going to say the first half of a common saying, and I want you to finish that saying, okay? So I'll say the first part, you say the second part, and then I'll let you know if you got it right. So, never put off until tomorrow what you can avoid completely. If you can't say something nice, say it in French. If at first you don't succeed, destroy the evidence that you tried. Where there's a will, I want to be in it. The best things in life will make you fat. Misery loves, that's right, bacon. It's never too late to go back to bed. Think about how those jokes work. You start with something familiar, something that people know so well they could finish it themselves, and then you give a twist at the end. And that twist, it changes the meaning of the whole sentence. You make it about something more or something different or maybe even saying the opposite of what the original saying was meant to say. That's what Paul is doing here. He's taking a familiar structure and he's giving a twist to it and it completely transforms the whole meaning. Basketball becomes soccer. So what's the twist that Paul is applying to these relationships? To each of the relationships, he is applying this principle. Your power is for other people. Your power is for other people. If you want healthy relationships, you need to use whatever power you have in the relationship for the sake of the other person. So this is what Paul does with these instructions. When he is talking to the person in the relationship who has less power in the family, he he says things that sound fairly conventional for his day. But when he talks to the person who has the most power in the relationship, the paterfamilias, he, he completely subverts the normal cultural expectations. He's radically, radically subversive. Because here's what we do. Here's our default approach to power. I use my power for me. I use my power to get my way in a situation, to make myself comfortable, to avoid suffering. But that is not the way Jesus used power. Listen to how Jesus talks about power. 
He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be your slave. Just as the son of man, and that's Jesus, just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is how Paul redefines the Roman household. He says to the person with the power, the paterfamilias, your power is not for you. Your power is for others. Your power is for the rest of your family. Let's look at how this gets applied to these specific relationships within the household. Let's turn to the first one. Wives and husbands. Wives and husbands. Paul starts off with this command to wives. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Now, if you are a first century person, this wouldn't make you blink. It's conventional, ordinary things. This is the way the world worked. But for most of us today, hearing that word submission, even just understanding that word is a little bit difficult. It might help by starting to explain uh, not what submission means, but what it doesn't mean. First thing is this, submission does not mean all women submit to all men. This is not a general principle about society. This is not meaning that men should always lead and women should always follow. This is not about the workplace. It's not about government. It's not about society. This is about marriages. And that's the only place this command applies. Submission also doesn't mean conforming to gender stereotypes. So when people explain these verses, very often they fall into kind of male-female stereotypes that sound like they've been drawn straight out of Leave it to Beaver. You know, women, if they have children, they need to stay home uh, and not work. And if they do work, men need to make sure that they uh, make more money than their wife. Uh, Women should cook and clean and men should handle the finances and use power tools. Uh, Women are more relational and emotional and men are more rational and task-oriented. Now, that might be how some households work, but that's not what this verse is talking about. And, And nothing like that is described in the Bible. We pull those things from our own culture, not from Scripture. Submission also does not mean doing whatever your husband wants. It does not mean that your husband calls all the shots. It does not mean that you have to keep your opinion to yourself. It does not mean that you never raise objections or insist on a course of action. It does not mean that you are silent. And most importantly, submission does not mean tolerating abuse. It does not mean tolerating abuse. Biblical submission never means staying in a situation that is unsafe if you can get out. And this is true not just for wives, but for anyone. If you are being threatened or you're being hurt by someone in your family or someone at work or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or anybody, get help. God does not want you to stay in that situation. That is not his expectation for you. So get whatever help you can. If you need to call the police, call the police. If you need to call the church, call the church. Call a friend if you need to. Call somebody, but get help. Because submission does not mean tolerating abuse. So if those are the things that submission does not mean, what actually is submission? Well, submission is letting someone else lead you. It's letting someone else lead you. It's when you say, I'm not going to be the only person who has a say in my life. I'm going to let you have a say in how I live and the decisions that I make, and the course that my life takes. I'm not going to live independently of you. I'm going to let you have a claim on my life, and I'm not just going to do whatever I want. You're going to be a part of that. 
Now, this is not a completely one-way thing. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that uh, submission is something that every Christ follower is supposed to do. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is supposed to be the general posture of, uh, of Christ followers towards one another always. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we yield to each other's leadership in our lives. So if you call me out on my sin, even if I don't like that, I submit. When I get wise, godly advice from people, even if it challenges the decision I would have made, I submit to that. When my church is led by the Spirit in a certain direction, even if it wasn't the direction that I came up with, I submit to that. Submission is the normal posture of a Christ follower. This actually includes husbands submitting to their wives. There, there are lots of times when Michelle needs to teach me or correct me or call me out on something. And I see that as Christ's leadership in my life. And so I submit to it. So submission is not just for wives. It is for Christ followers everywhere. And the reason we submit is because Christ himself submitted. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, which means that submission has nothing to do with inferiority or lack of ability or lack of honor because Jesus had more of all of those things than anybody and he still submitted. But the specific question here is in what way does submission play out between a wife and her husband? Now, there's a debate among Christians about how much leadership a husband has within a marriage. And there's really kind of two sides of this debate. On the one side, there are complementarians. Complementarians say that uh, women and men are equal, but God has assigned different roles for them within a marriage. Specifically, he has given the responsibility to lead to men. And then on the other side, there are egalitarians. And they say, certainly there are differences between men and women, but God has not assigned different roles within marriage based on gender. Now, I'm not going to get into all the complex arguments about these two positions, but I do want to let you know that there are godly Christ followers who take the Bible seriously on both sides of this debate. Now, here at Christ Community Church, we are what you might call soft complementarians. That basically means we make everybody angry. So if you have a question or a, a comment about what I'm about to say, you can send an email to jnicodem at ccclife.org. Uh, here, here's what this means. Uh, we are as close as we can get to the line on egalitarianism, but we still think that there are some areas where God has entrusted leadership to a husband. I think there are two specific places where the Bible gives some responsibility to husbands. Here's the first one. Setting the spiritual tone for your marriage. Setting the spiritual tone for your marriage. This doesn't mean that a wife doesn't have her own spiritual life or that she's not responsible for contributing to the spiritual health of the marriage. But it does mean a husband needs to take the lead in encouraging the spiritual health of the couple and the family. So I think what this means minimally is praying with your wife and praying for your wife. This is probably something you should be doing every single day, at least. I also think it's your job, husbands, not, not your wife's job, to ensure that your family is participating in worship every week. Don't leave that to her. Make sure that you're leading the way on that. It also means that you are regularly, probably daily, asking your wife, hey, what are you learning from God's word? And sharing the things that you learn from the scriptures yourself. It probably means you're sitting down and reading the Bible together at different points. The other area of leadership that I think husbands have is making sure your family is staying on mission. Think of it this way. A CEO for a company, their job is to make sure that everybody in the company is staying on mission towards their goals and their objectives as a company. It doesn't mean that the CEO makes every decision in the company 
or, or just makes decisions that they want or always gets their way or does the things that make them most happy and comfortable. It means that they keep raising the question, are we seeking after the mission of our organization? I think that's the same job a husband has within a marriage and a family. He is supposed to be making sure the family is asking the question, what specific assignment has God given to us? What part of our world are we supposed to influence as a family? What needs do we need to meet? What people are we supposed to reach? What is our mission? And it's the job of a husband to make sure that no one ever lose sight of that. Now, these are the leadership roles that God uh, assigns to a husband within a marriage. And the reason we hold to that is because of passages like this one that talk about wives and husbands in this way. But when you focus in on the leadership component, you actually miss the main point of these passages. Notice that in verse 19, Paul's command is not, husbands lead your wives. His command is this, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is the command that upends what it means for a wife to submit because it shows what a wife is submitting to. This is where basketball becomes soccer. Now, this was absolutely radical in Paul's day because in the instructions that normal philosophers and writers would say to families, they would never say to a husband, love your wife. They just didn't say that sort of thing. But here, Paul says it. And you also notice that Paul does not say, make sure your wife is submitting. That's never a command given to husbands. Our job is to love our wives. But it's more than that. He actually says we're supposed to sacrifice for our wives the way Christ sacrificed for us. Listen to how Paul explains it in a parallel passage in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Again, this is Paul saying to husbands, your power is for others. Your power is for your wife. And so here's what this means. It means that if your wife is sacrificing more than you are, you are doing it wrong. This means if you are expecting her to serve you, to cook for you, to clean for you, to look good for you, to meet your sexual demands and get out of your way when you need to relax, you are doing it wrong. When your work gets the best and your wife gets the leftovers, you are doing it wrong. When you are turning to porn rather than delighting in her, you are doing it wrong. When you are not pursuing her like Christ pursued the church, you are doing it wrong. Because this kind of love, this kind of love, sacrificial, self-giving love is what wives are called to submit to. Here's how you actually know when you're doing it right. When your wife starts to look like the church. So if you actually read through the book of Ephesians, before Paul says, love your wives like Christ loved the church, he actually describes what Jesus does for the church. And this is what you find out if you read it. He says that Jesus lavishes riches on the church. Jesus elevates the church by seating us with him in heavenly places of authority. Jesus shares his glory with the church. Jesus empowers the church to use the full range of our gifts. Jesus equips the church to grow into the fullness of who we were made to be. Those are the things that Jesus does for the church. So if you are loving your wife like Jesus loved the church, then your wife will be growing in authority and glory and giftedness 
and becoming more and more the person she was meant to be, fully herself. This is what wives are called to submit to. Now you can see how that flips things upside down when Paul says, husbands, use your power for the benefit of your wives, not just for yourself. Now, before I move on to the next relationship, let, let me uh, recommend to you this incredible group that we have here at the church. It's called Reengage. Uh, Reengage is a marriage enrichment program uh, where we come alongside couples and we help them learn biblical tools to take their marriage to the next level. Uh, we just started a new Reengage group, and you can still jump in if you do that this week. So I would highly recommend that you do that, and you can find out more about that at our website, ccclife.org. When we use power for the sake of others, it not only transforms the relationship between husbands and wives, it changes the relationship between children and parents. Let's look again at verse 20. Verse 20 says this, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail about this one. It's not hard to understand, and it's not controversial. I'll just highlight this, that when children are called to obey their parents— They're called to do things that please the Lord. So we're never called to obey something our parents tell us to do that is contrary to the law of God. So that's that's the one limitation on here. But the more important verse here is actually verse 21, where it says, Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. The idea of being embittered is when someone pushes back, resists something that you say. And Paul is saying, here's your job, parents. It's not to force compliance no matter what on your kids. The command here is to make sure you're not embittering them. Another way to put that is this. Make sure you're not acting in a way that you're becoming a barrier between your kids and wanting to obey God. Make sure that you are not the reason they're resisting God's commands. So let me give you three ingredients here that will help you not embitter or discourage your children when it comes to obedience. First is this, compassion, compassion. This goes back to the message from last week. Compassion is when you understand what is difficult about another person's life. It's when you know this is what's hard about your situation and I actually want to do something about it. Do you know what is difficult about your kids' lives? My my guess is right now, it's the same thing that's difficult for all of us. Shelter in place, right? (laughs) Uh, I've got a three-year-old who basically every day goes from zero to Chernobyl like that. He, he doesn't understand what's going on. It's so frustrating for him. He, he can't go to the parks and he doesn't get it. And his mom's always helping his sisters with schoolwork and can't pay attention to him and he doesn't understand. And uh, he doesn't know why he can't see his grandma and all sorts of things. And so this is really hard for him. So that stress, that anxiety that he might not even grasp or, or figure out, it, it's making it difficult when we ask him to do something. When we tell him to do something, he doesn't have the resources. It's hard. In your home, it might be that you have a fourth grader who really misses his friends or a teenager who's struggling with online learning and they might be acting up because of that and it's just driving you crazy. But have you taken the time to have compassion on them? Say, what's hard about this for them? That might change how you approach the situation and it might change how they respond to you because compassion is the way you build trust and trust is the heart of obedience. When your kids, you know, know that you get what is difficult about their life, it is so much easier for them to trust you when you ask them to do something. The, the second ingredient is motivation. Motivation. If you want your kids to do the right thing, even when you haven't told them and you aren't watching and they don't even live in your home anymore, you need to give them motivation for obedience. 
A lot of times, uh, the way parents motivate obedience is using one of two default tools, carrots and sticks, okay? Sometimes to get something done, you gotta, you know, give a little reward, a little extra screen time, dessert after dinner, five bucks if that's what it takes. And then there are times when you need to make a threat, you know, you're gonna take away a phone, you're gonna get grounded, you're gonna get a timeout. Carrots and sticks, and I'll tell you this, I use them every single day, and they work in the short run, in the short run. In the long run, though, if all you ever use are carrots and sticks, it will always backfire on you. Here's what I mean. If the only reason your son is doing what's right, the only reason he behaves is because he's trying to avoid a punishment, then what happens when he's in a situation he knows he can get away with something? What's going to motivate him then? Or or if your daughter, if the reason that she does what's right is because she knows she's going to get a reward, What happens when doing what's right doesn't bring a reward? What if it actually costs her something? What will motivate her then? We we need to help our kids to behave not just through bribes and coercion, but by giving explanation and motivation for what they're supposed to do. We need to give them the reasons and the beauty and the delight of obedience so that they're motivated even when we're not there. Third ingredient is consistency. Consistency. Inconsistency comes in a lot of different forms. Sometimes it's changing expectations. It is so frustrating. It's so frustrating for kids when they get in trouble for something they didn't even know was against the rules. It just surprises them. Or or when the rules aren't really based on principles, it's just based on whatever annoys their parents. If if, if you bother me, you get in trouble. Uh, Sometimes parents are inconsistent because they enforce rules differently with different kids. So if you've got one kid that you're really strict with, and another kid you're always making excuses for, can you imagine how that might embitter at least one of them? Uh, Sometimes the inconsistency, though, is that parents apply to their kids values and rules that they refuse to apply to themselves. If you want to embitter a child against obedience, the best way to do it is to be a hypocrite. So those are the ingredients, compassion, motivation, and consistency. Each of those is a way for a parent to use their power to help their kids want to obey, want to obey. Uh, Let's talk about the third relationship here. It's actually the hardest one. Slaves and masters, slaves and masters. Uh, Slavery was very widespread in the Roman Empire. About a third of all people in the empire were slaves. Uh, They worked in all areas of life. So if you lived in the Roman Empire, you would be running into slaves everywhere you went. And there was some major differences between Roman slavery and American slavery. And those are important to understand. Uh, For one thing, Roman slavery was not based on race. It was not based on race. Uh, American slavery was founded on the idea of white supremacy and black inferiority. But Romans, uh, Roman slaves would come from all different cultures, all different ethnicities. Usually the way someone became a slave was because they were a prisoner of war or they were trying to pay off a debt or maybe they were a child who had been abandoned and picked up by someone. Uh, Roman slaves were also entrusted with more power than American slaves. It was very common for uh, Roman slave owners to educate their slaves, to give them uh, training and higher level skills. And that meant that there were slaves in all areas of life. There were doctors and teachers, accountants, sea captains, uh, secretaries, people who oversaw entire households. Um, Actually, if you uh, read the parables of Jesus, a lot of times those servants who are overseeing their master's work or their their master's money or property, those are slaves. Uh, Roman slaves actually could own property. They were allowed to do that. They had their own money. Uh, It was uh, not uncommon for masters to give a reward to slaves, a monetary award to slaves uh, when they did something really special. Um, And so they would work hard and they would get paid a bit and they would use that money 
to save up for their freedom because they were allowed to do that. Uh, Actually, the majority of slaves, the average age when slaves either bought their freedom or were released by their master was before the age of 30. Now, none of this is to say that Roman slavery wasn't bad. It just was a different kind of bad from American slavery. A slave was still someone who was owned by another person. And the master had a massive amount of power over them that probably nobody should have over another person. But in the Roman system, there was far more possibility that a slave could be treated with dignity and justice than there was in the American system. And whether or not that happened largely depended on the kind of master the slave had and how the master used their power. So let's look again at what Paul tells slaves in verse 22. He says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Here's the way I'd sum up what Paul is saying here. He's telling slaves, choose to see your work as working for Christ. Choose to see your work as working for Christ. So for ancient slaves, this was huge. Uh, Even if they couldn't obtain their freedom, this gave weight and dignity to their lives. Because whatever they thought of their earthly masters, they knew they weren't working for them. They weren't working for them. They were working for King Jesus. And they knew even if they were not paid, they were not rewarded now, they would receive an inheritance in full from Christ. And they also knew the whole time that whatever their masters did, their masters would answer to Christ and he would repay every wrong. There is no favoritism with Christ. Christ was not going to favor their masters over them. Now, there's a huge difference between ancient slavery and the modern workplace. But there are some principles here that I think transfer, they apply to those situations, how we relate to our employers. It is so important for us to see our work, especially when it's work we don't really want to do. It's not just working for a boss or a paycheck or for our career, but it's working for Christ. This is an offering of worship to Christ. So your value is not diminished by the fact that you feel like you're in a dead-end job. It's also not increased when you have a killer career that's just blowing up. Your reward comes from Christ and from him alone. I also think that during shelter in place, this line about doing your work, not only when your master's eye is on you, is pretty appropriate for us right now. If you're working from home, it is so much easier to take shortcuts and cut corners and to slack off than it is when your boss is just down the hall. But it helps if you remember, this work is being done not for them, not to please them, but to please Christ. But let me shift to the more significant part of this this pairing here, to what Paul says to masters. Verse one, he says, masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Now that's short and it might not sound like much, but let me unpack it. First he says, provide for them what is right and fair. What is he talking about here? He's saying, pay them. He's saying, pay them. Give them what is right and fair. Just like I said before, some masters could give money to their slaves. Paul's saying, make sure you do that and you give them something that's a fair wage for their work. Then he says, he says, remember that you also have a master in heaven. He is saying, uh, slaves, you work as if you're free because in Christ you actually are free and masters work as if you're a slave 
because you are a slave. You're a slave to Christ. And this is critical because it means that masters, Christian slave owners, must obey all of the laws of God, including in how they act towards their slaves. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you think of any biblical laws that might dramatically change the relationship between a master and a slave? I can think of a few. I can think of a few hundred that would transform that relationship. So what happens if a master stops beating his slaves and threatening them? What what if he starts paying them what is right and fair? What if he consistently obeys the laws of God and how he treats his slaves? I'll tell you this, that doesn't look much like slavery anymore. You, You say you're describing basketball, but it's starting to sound a lot like soccer. Let let me add another layer to this. Look down at verse 9 in chapter 4, okay? Uh, This is a section of uh, Paul's letters we almost always skim over because it just feels like a list of names. Uh, But there's a really interesting name here. Uh, Paul is describing the people he sent with the letter. So in ancient times, there was no postal service. Uh, If you wanted to get a letter to another city, you gave it to a friend who was going that way and they brought it for you. So Paul's saying, here are the friends that I sent with this letter. Uh, A guy named Tychicus and then this guy. Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. Now you might hear that and think, well, I don't know who that is. Might not ring any bells. But if you were in the uh, Colossian church, that name would have felt like a bomb going off because Onesimus was a runaway slave from Colossae. And the only reason we know Onesimus' story is because when Paul wrote his letter to the Colossians, he also wrote another letter. So he sends one letter to the Colossian church, And then he sends another letter to a member of the Colossian church, a man named Philemon. Uh, I don't know if you've read the book of Philemon. It's, It's very short, but incredibly interesting. And the interesting thing is that Philemon was Onesimus's owner. He was the master. So Onesimus runs away from Philemon and he goes off and he runs to another town. And in that town, he meets Paul. And Paul does what he always does with people he's met. And he shares the good news about Jesus with Onesimus. And Onesimus surrenders his life to Christ and becomes a believer. So then what does Paul do? Well, it turns out Paul actually had already met Philemon, his master. A few years earlier, Philemon had run into Paul as well. And Paul shared the gospel with him. And Philemon became a follower of Christ. So now he's got the two of them. So Paul says, Onesimus, I'm sending you back. And so Onesimus goes and he is carrying both of these letters. And Onesimus is the one who goes into the church and says, I've got letters from Paul. And both of those letters would have been read in front of the entire church congregation. So I want you to hear what the letter in Philemon actually says about Onesimus. It says, perhaps Philemon, the reason Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, can you imagine that situation? Philemon is sitting there in church with other people around him and he is hearing that letter read with Onesimus standing right there. And it says things like this. Welcome him as if he were Paul himself. Treat him like a fellow human being. Consider him a brother in the Lord, a brother that you will spend forever with and do even more than I ask you. 
In the letter, Paul never says overtly, free Onesimus. But what happens if Philemon does even one of these things? I'm guessing it doesn't look much like slavery anymore. In fact, we know what happened to Onesimus. It's not recorded for us in scripture, but we have a letter that was written 50 years later to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And you know who the pastor was? Onesimus. Why in the Bible does Paul not say, masters, set your slaves free? The answer to that uh, question is pretty complex, but part of the answer is this. Paul kind of did say that. He just said it in a different way than we expected. He said, masters, treat your slaves like humans, like brothers, Give them all the justice and love that the law of God requires. And all the while, remember that you are a slave to Christ and you will be answerable for all the ways you treat your slaves. There are actually two ways to take down an evil empire. One is through direct challenge, through armies and battles and war. The other is through subversion, through spies and propaganda and cultural influence and sabotage. When the kingdom of God shows up someplace, it almost always takes the second round. How does the gospel undermine injustice? By teaching those with power that their power is for other people. So here's the question I want to leave you with. How can you use your power for the sake of others? I know that the power dynamics in a modern family or a workplace are really different from the first century, but there are still power dynamics. Do you recognize the power that you have over other people? The way you influence your spouse and your children and your employees, the way you affect their lives. And do you use your power for their benefit rather than yours? How can you change the game that you are playing by using your power sacrificially? Of course, the the reason we do this is because this is what Jesus did for us. We're, We're about to celebrate communion, which is a symbol of the way Jesus, the most powerful person who has ever existed, the way he used his power to sacrifice for the good of other people. Listen to what Philippians 2 says about Jesus. It says, Being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is why we use our power for the sake of others, because Jesus used his power for us.